Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 163, Coco's Part 3. Hopefully the past couple weeks have given you a good idea about how collectivization started, what the initial experience of joining one was like, and how they were supposed to work. But today we're going to be covering how everything went horribly wrong, and where millions of people wound up dying. The wildly successful grain harvest of 1930 had proven to be kind of a trap for the Soviet leadership. Even taken into account overstatements from local reporting, it was a bumper crop. The trouble was that the communists gambled that it would happen again the next year, but the overstatement and reporting had meant that the 1930 harvest had been over-requisitioned, which meant that the peasants both suffered from shortages of seed to plant the next crop, and also were demoralized and not terribly interested in going above and beyond with the next harvest, since it had been made abundantly clear that more of their crop would just be requisitioned. The USSR's 1931 harvest immediately demonstrated the folly and excessive and increasingly desperate grain collection which had been occurring for the past three years. Where the 1930 harvest produced in actuality some 73 to 77 million tons of grain, the one for 1931 produced between 57 to 65 million tops. Not only a significant decrease, but that numerical range is a good indicator that officials really weren't sure how much was actually being harvested, what with the Kolzhnik peasants acting collectively to hide as much grain as they could, or in many cases neglecting the collective land entirely and focusing on their tiny personal plots. Mikoyan, who was in charge of internal as well as external trade, was despondent, as predictions had been made that the harvest would be slightly better than 1930. Communist leadership approached everything as an industrial problem, where success could be built on success, but farming doesn't really work that way. At the end of October 1931, he admitted to the Central Committee that they had awaited the harvest with uh, rainbow perspectives. The reality certainly dashed those rainbows, which went to show just how inexperienced the communists were with agriculture. I harped a lot on it in covering the CPC last miniseries, but the communist ranks were disproportionately drawn from the cities, and at every level there was widespread ignorance about how farming operations worked and the conditions required for them to make consistent deliveries of foodstuffs. Over-procurement and drought, though, had defied the assessments coming out of Moscow. Stalin refused to cut back on exports, which is why the 1931 grain export total matched the previous year, despite being a disastrously bad harvest. What is even more tragic is that by 1931, the world was gripped by the Great Depression, so food prices had cratered, and the Soviet government wasn't even getting all that much from the exports when compared to the grain prices of years previous. While Stalin lowered the quotas of areas hit by the drought, he raised them in areas that had not. This was the point where the entire system of procurement began to break down. With colossal amounts of food getting exported and the countryside's production in a shortfall, food became scarce all over the country. The peasants, meanwhile, didn't want to sell to the government, as 100 kilograms, or around 220 pounds of grain, went for only 5.5 rubles on the state market. Meanwhile, on the limited open markets, the desperate urban dwellers drove the price up to over 61 rubles for the same amount. It just made sense to withhold from the collectors. The state agents handling the requisitions, though, turned desperate and began grabbing up every bit of food they could. Stalin ominously blamed the reluctance on a dangerous kulak mentality. 
Despite the harvests in Ukraine and the North Caucasus being unspectacular, those regions bore much the brunt of requisitions on account of not enduring as bad a drought as regions to the east and north during 1931. On account of Ukraine being its own republic within the USSR, it had its own central committee to represent it. And the word coming out of Kiev was that they would almost immediately be facing total disaster if the collections were not stopped immediately. Moscow, though, didn't listen, and Mikoyan deluded himself into predicting that things would turn around in 1932 and procurement levels would be higher than ever once the drought had passed. It was not long before he was dissuaded from his optimistic thinking. Reports started filtering in about hundreds of thousands of hungry peasants leaving the Kolkos and heading to the cities to try and scavenge some food. It got bad enough, fast enough, that in early 1932, some grain had to be sent back to the countryside. Not enough to stop what was coming, of course. But even to Mikoyan, it was clear by early 1932 that they could only look forward to more shortfalls as the harvest for that year was bound to be disastrous. The situation was serious enough that the rule to collectivize livestock was canceled on March 26th in an effort to entice peasants to stay on the Kolkos. But it was too late to save the livestock of Soviet agriculture. By the end of 1932, the farm animal population was completely crippled and would take a generation or more to recover. I've mentioned several times the culling of livestock by the peasants to avoid having them turned over to state control, and the statistics are startling. The number of horses dropped by 15.3 million, or 47% of the 1929 totals. Cattle was reduced by 24.7 million, and 42%. Sheep and goats fell by 69.8 million, 65%. Finally, the number of pigs fell by 9.5 million, a 49% decrease. These are apocalyptic figures and represent a catastrophic loss in the variety of the Soviet diet, in addition to a loss of useful animals on farms that were only fitfully becoming mechanized. A party boss in Ukraine reported to Moscow that a quarter of the republic's horses were dead and the remainder were in terrible health, hardly useful for farm work. The timing of the food crisis could not have been more inopportune. The first waves of new heavy industries were just coming online, and the food shortages threatened everything they had sacrificed for. After all, workers couldn't man the new factories if they were starving. Stockpiles of food in the USSR amounted to maybe a month of consumption by spring, and on May 23rd, Kubishev was advising that even the favorable rations allotted to Communist Party members be slashed. This was not accepted, but rations to the Red Army were cut by 16%, and grain imports from Persia were authorized. Molotov reported on May 26th that the situation in Ukraine was even worse than the bosses in Moscow had realized, and Stalin authorized tens of thousands of tons of seed grain to be released from the national reserves and sent to the Western republics. These authorizations would rise to over 1.25 million tons of seed grain across the whole Union, a clear sign of how the farms had been starved of the means to sustain themselves. On June 26th, Stalin finally authorized sharp reductions in the export of grain, dropping from 5 million to 1.75 million tons in 1932. This, however, did not lead to any relief to the peasants. The harvests of 1932 saw no recovery from the year previous, and in fact, overall, things just got a lot worse, with the total amount of grain coming in at 50 to 60 million, approaching the catastrophic levels last seen back in 1921. 
Again, the wide range of the numbers as a result of the official reporting being horrendously unreliable, which highlights how Moscow is making many of its decisions based on faulty data, which in turn demonstrates the unscrupulous bureaucratic culture among the lower and middle rungs that have been created by the mad dash of the five-year plan. The shortfalls did not stop state officials from collecting the same disastrous amounts of grain in 1932, though, and when the Ukrainian party bosses protested, Molotov and Kaganovich were deployed in early July to personally ensure that, th that collection efforts were maintained. Those two guys kind of formed the Politburo's duo when it came to working in Ukraine. The Ukrainian party bosses pled that communities were already starving despite the harvest just coming in, but Stalin's lieutenants overruled them. By then, the empty harvest engineered by the regime was already in full swing, and it would prove to be massively disruptive to the entire collectivization effort, as farmers simply left their villages in a desperate search for food. Stalin spent the summer of 1932 vacationing in Sochi, the premier Soviet resort town along the Black Sea, just to the northwest of Georgia. Reports steadily flowed in about the growing crisis, and there was a panic for the local bosses at the indifference on display from on high. Stalin personally was more annoyed at reports of Western visitors touring the famine-stricken regions and spreading the news abroad than the reports themselves. Peasants made soup using grass as a key ingredient, and factory worker rations had to be watched over closely as hordes of the starving from the countryside prowled around the cities looking for any scrap of food. Seriously, people would take trains into the city so they could scrounge around for food. Stalin got the impression that there wasn't a true shortage, but instead the grain was being looted off delivery trains by corrupt speculators. On August 7, 1932, he issued a law imposing the death penalty for the theft of any amount of grain coming from the Kokos. While he reduced the penalty just a month later, it was changed instead to 10 years of imprisonment, which meant the gulag, and yeah, you didn't want that. He had a meltdown over a request delivered by Kaganovich from the Ukraine party bosses asking for more reductions to their grain quotas. The pleading for relief only aroused his suspicions of a Kulak plot, and this was not helped by evidence that Ukrainians acting as Polish agents were infiltrating the Ukrainian SSR. This led to a house-cleaning in the upper leadership in Ukraine, with many top spots going to Stalin's men, who all shared his callousness, with Kaganovich being forced to intervene to prevent a complete overhaul. All across the USSR, quotas were reduced, but even the revised amounts were unobtainable with the bad harvest. All across the belt of famine, society seemed to break down. All told, 50 to 70 million were caught in the hunger's grip across the Union. By spring 1933, the OGPU was reporting that it had intercepted 200,000 people roaming the country looking for food. Corpses were scattered everywhere, uh, on the roads, in the fields, even the pitiless open steppes, where they might have just wandered into to put themselves out of their misery all the more quickly. Small animals, yes, including cats and dogs, were hunted relentlessly, and the old horror of 1921 of graveyards being raided for fresh meat made a repeat historical appearance. In Kazakhstan, two million people fled the Kolkhoz, and heads of livestock had dropped there from 40 million three years previously to just six million. Almost a million and a half people in that SSR would die in the famines, against a total population of six and a half million. Ukraine, far and away the most famous area of famine in the West, but in reality only a piece of the hideous puzzle, saw three and a half million die against a total population of 33. It was during this desperate time that the mass cullings of livestock really took off, and again, Kazakhstan led the way in misery per capita. 
A million camels were used as draft animals in that SSR, and their numbers dwindled down to less than 75,000 after the famine. The vast herds of sheep that had always been the backbone of their pastoral economy sunk from 22 million heads to 1.7. The catastrophe was so complete that when restrictions on owning private livestock were relaxed across the Union, Kazakhstan got special rules that allowed for much more private ownership in a bid to replenish the numbers. Between 5 and 7 million people would die in the famine, with another 10 million enduring privation so bad that they nearly died. As you might imagine, this did not help the stability of the food supply for the cities. And in 1932, and then again in 1933, even less food was made available to urbanites. And the leadership in Moscow was forced to return a third of what it collected in 1933 back to the countryside in order to try and prevent a complete societal collapse there. But even with some amount of grain having to be sent back thanks to the famine being well underway by 1932, the Soviet government was not about to back down from the requisitioning. Keep in mind that collectivization was occurring at the same time as the rapid industrialization campaign. The entirety of the Soviet leadership was fully mobilized and working under virtually wartime conditions, and the agricultural sector wasn't the only one in the midst of a radical transformation at the cost of intense human misery. Men like Molotov, Ganovich, and Orjanikidze weren't about to back down now that they were actually executing what they had all dreamed about. The USSR was ringed by enemies, and economic independence was the only way to defend against them. They had all been forced to act brutally in the past, and they weren't going to flinch now that the moment of truth had arrived. Contrary to the belief of many outside commentators, the famine was not an engineered one, and in fact, part of the reason it got so bad was because central leadership wanted to believe the procurement reports it was receiving, and then when the obvious could no longer be ignored, they were intensely embarrassed at the failure of policies they had genuinely believed in. Because make no mistake, while I'm focusing on the increase of state power at the expense of the peasantry as a big theme of collectivization, you should also keep in mind that the men enforcing all this were working under a grander plan than just, you know, smack around the peasantry. They believed that the new institutions they were creating were both morally superior and would prove to be more beneficial in the long run for average people. Accusations of cynicism and hypocrisy among the Soviet leadership are founded on the ad hoc decisions and numerous compromises those leaders were forced to make as they transformed the USSR's agricultural and industrial sectors simultaneously over just a few years. The procurement quotas were undeniably brutal, but for the sake of industrialization, the communists believed they could stretch their resources and play a dangerous game for the few years of breakneck effort needed to get a modernized economy going. They acted optimistically, but the weather doesn't run off optimism. And when the crops failed, the entire apparatus of the state was in such a frenzy across the board that it was impossible to pause and adjust for the crisis. There was only forward, regardless of the cost. Added on top of that frenzy was the fact that the state wasn't equipped to handle collectivization in the first place, and the constant pressure to procure grain meant that patient evaluations and calibrations of what worked and what didn't were out of the question. It was a storm of activity and change that humanity had never seen before, never even conceived of before, really. And thanks to the export policies, by 1932, there wasn't sufficient grain in reserve to prevent the famine. A sufficient reduction in procurements to prevent the famine in the countryside would ensure one in the cities, where, like in the Civil War, there would be millions of urbanites fleeing out into the country looking for food, which was unacceptable on a lot of levels. 
What should have been done was Stalin should have swallowed his pride and forgone the international propaganda benefits of his policies by purchasing grain on the foreign markets and importing it, if only for a year or two. The first wave of industrialization was already well underway, and thanks to the Depression, food was cheap everywhere. The greatest crime committed was trying to play down the policy failure and acting like the crisis wasn't as bad as it definitely was. Part of what was happening, too, was that peasants were turning towards various methods of resistance to the collectivization policies. I've discussed in the past two episodes various means by which the peasants carried this out, how some of the Klokos actively neglected their responsibilities, while during the anti-religion campaigns, peasants turned towards that persecuted faith as a bulwark against the enroaching state. There were other expressions of resistance as well, though. The Klokosan villages were rife with tensions that were made all the worse by anonymous threats being made in the thousands. These would take the form of unsigned letters or proclamations nailed to public spaces or something along those lines. They would promise retribution and violence to the communists operating in the countryside. One example was a 25,000er who was passed a note that if he carried on stumping for the party, he was going to get thrown in a river. In rarer but more extreme examples, there were calls for outright rebellion. While anti-state activity never reached the levels seen in 1920 and 21, they did indicate the mood of much of the peasantry. They also went hand-in-hand -hand with the direction of collectivization, spiking during the forced drives onto the Kolkos in early 1930, then slackening off, then picking back up again in 1931 and 32. Far more tangible were individual acts of violence. Keep in mind that the on-the-spot state officials like those running the Kolkos were every bit as local as the people they managed. They lived in the same villages and drank in the same watering holes. It was a favorite tactic to wait for nightfall, break out a knife or shotgun, and ambush an unsuspecting communist. Or if everybody in town was out drinking, then get the offending officials so boozed up that they could be provoked into a fight, or at least the crowd could plausibly say that the official had started one. There were also instances of lynchings and outright disappearances as well. Arson was also a popular tool of resistance, as the primitive construction of buildings in the Soviet countryside was very conducive for things catching on fire. And no, there wasn't a lot of firefighting equipment on hand, so when something lit up, it typically stayed that way until it burned itself out. Peasant homes and storage facilities were usually huts and shacks, and it was hard to pin down what might have started a blaze once it got going. In this manner especially, state officials were left in a state of fear of the peasants. Never knew when you'd be sleeping and if your house might catch on fire mysteriously. All this was also a danger to peasants who opted to join with the Kolkos and try to make the best of it. Those who decided to work with the state were targeted for retribution, making the local conflicts oftentimes peasant-on-peasant -peasant in nature. Out of the around 30,000 collective farms in existence in 1931, fully 10,000 had reported some form of targeted violence against either communists or unaffiliated peasants working with them. Then there were the times, especially early on, when peasants got fed up and just rioted. While you can't really count a localized riot as a true uprising, especially since they usually burn themselves out quickly, they were a common expression of deep dissatisfaction. That they were usually confined to local villages or sub-provincial units was a direct result of the OGPU being very proactive in monitoring for organizations cropping up that might have been able to expand the anti-state struggle. The worst example was in the North Caucasus, where hundreds of villages and tens of thousands of peasants rose up against the, the authorities. Despite the scale of that uprising, there was little in the way of organization or leadership to really tie it together. 
demonstrating both the effectiveness of the OGPU and the sheer dislocation that peasant villages had endured in softening up their rural communities. Peasants who could also try to leave entirely. Many Kulaks, who could liquidate their holdings before the state bore down on them, took off for the regions east of the Urals to start new lives, before the state forced them to do that anyway. A small number on the borderlands tried to leave, with many attempting to travel west to Poland or south to Persia. Probably most worrisome to the Soviet leaders was direct sabotage. While I don't want to play into the paranoid fantasies of Stalin too deeply here, there was genuine action to disrupt the Kolkhoz. I mentioned a moment ago that arson was a common tactic. So too was the destruction of tools and equipment. And while Stalin's harsh decrees concerning food theft were dressed up as tackling a kulak plot, in reality, theft was born out of desperation for food. This would come in numerous forms, sometimes as simple as making off with an extra pouch of grain, while other times official documents were either forged or purchased illicitly to certify that food quotas had been completed, allowing the rest of the crop to go to the Kokolzhniks. Railway workers were themselves bribed with food to look the other way when grain cars were only uh, loaded up mostly or even partially. Whatever form resistance took, it always disrupted the flow of food to actual people, making the following requisitions all the worse, inciting the peasants to ever more desperate acts just to survive. It kind of comes down to how you want to look at it. The state was changing people's entire way of life overnight, attempting to drag it into a kind of modernity the people themselves were not prepared for, while the peasant backlash proved to be fruitless acts of spite that contributed heavily to the dangerous shortfalls in the food supply seen after 1930. In an attempt to provide some structure to grain collection, at the end of 1932, a new committee for procurements, known as the Komzag, was formed that would centrally manage grain requisitions and coordinate between commissariats moving forward. Coordinate was kind of a loose term. Its expansive powers would eventually mean it was placed directly under the supervision of the Subnarkum, which in turn meant that it fell under the purview of Molotov. Overstretched and, frankly, stressed out provincial and local officials were relieved of direct responsibility in favor of specially organized groups called Komzagi, whose activities and procedures would be much more uniform than the local party rank and file. It would also mean that they were state agents who didn't have any attachment to the locality they were assigned to. The implementation of such a group, endowed with emergency powers, would mean that even the most remote communes were not outside the grasp of the state. During these attempts to provide some structure to the system, the Kolkhoz were given mixed signals from Moscow, as in the summer of 1932, it was declared that the collectivized markets, meaning where the farmers sold their excess on their own terms, would have their controls relaxed, in an effort to once again get them to produce as much as they possibly could. But then, just a half a year later, on January 19, 1933, it was decreed that the system of heavy requisitions would be formalized as the new tax structure of the Union's farms. Quotas would be maintained, with the only silver lining being that their expectations would be presented years in advance moving forward, so that farmers knew how much they had to deliver and when, regardless of what the actual harvest looked like. Part of the new laws was that farmers couldn't put any crops onto the collective market before their quotas were met. Access to the market was dependent on their deliveries being fulfilled. The whole hide away the grain and wait for the friendly OGPU agent to leave routine wasn't going to work nearly as well. Violators of the new laws would be branded as speculators, and you really didn't want that to happen. Likewise, the MTSs offering equipment for rent would be paid at set amounts per hectare that said equipment was to be used, not based on the actual harvest, but on the amount of land they were used on. 
and the guys running the MTSs developed a nasty habit of inflating their numbers to collect more grain so as to get on Moscow's good side. This was all, as you might imagine, a very stressful situation for the farmers. More so because they'd only know how much trouble they were in once the harvest was completed and everything got sorted out. This was a deliberate tactic by the state, because the alternative for a collectivized farmer, assuming they remained in the agricultural sector, was to join up with a soft cause and become a wage worker, almost as if the Kolkhoz were intended to be a transitory phase all along. And by 1933, the farmers were running out of whatever leverage they might have had. The remoteness and vastness of the country was being conquered by the state apparatus thanks to the Komzag, and thanks to mechanization, huge numbers of farmers had traveled to the cities since their labor wasn't required anymore, and it wasn't looking like things were going to get better anytime soon in the countryside, which meant that the remaining farmers depended on the equipment loaned out by the MTSs to bring in their harvest. And of course, the famine conditions that gripped the southern farm belt of the USSR meant that not only were millions dying, but those that remained were literally too weak to resist. A small but somewhat extraordinary story playing out adjacent to the drama surrounding collectivization was the continued survival of a significant number of private farmers, even through 1933. While it is true that they were, by that time, in the super minority, and their share would only dwindle from 20% of rural households in 1933 to 15% in 1935, that relatively modest decrease shows how the interest of the state shifted once the vast majority of peasants were on the Kolkhoz, and how the focus became on making them work. It's true that the private farmers from 1931 were actually handing over more on average than those on the Kolkhoz, and they were also constantly subject to being, well, they were effectively robbed, which would over time eliminate them, as once they had been drained dry through taxes and penalties for not delivering on state targets, they were forced to give up and join the Kolkhoz. But by 1933, state officials no longer saw pursuing them as an efficient use of resources while in the midst of famine. Once time had passed, eventually Moscow would remember them, and the bosses agreed that five million families worth of speculators was too much to bear. Kirov pointed out that the performance of the Kokos lagged behind the remaining private farms, and the comparison was a dangerous threat to the whole system they had just built. But instead of diverting resources to try and hound them, the Central Committee in July 1934 simply ordered that the smallholder farmers get their quotas raised once again. Before, they paid 10% more in crops than their collectivized counterparts. Moving forward, they'd have to pay 50% more. And if the farmers couldn't pay, well, failure to meet quota would mean your little farm got confiscated. While the new law didn't knock off private owners entirely, it did certainly reduce their numbers and make their lives miserable. By the mid-1930s, the victory of the Kokos was complete, and agriculture had fallen into the hands of the state. An old ambition, long frustrated, had been completed. To signal their confidence in this victory, controls on the Kolkhoz would be relaxed later on in the decade, which was less of a retreat than it was a display of confidence at that point, as the peasants had been firmly broken as a class apart from the rest of the USSR. So, reaching our stopping point of around mid-1934, what conclusions can we draw about collectivization and its place in the development of the Soviet Union? To the sane and empathetic listener, you're probably dwelling on the sheer human misery of it all, the complete and total unfairness of how the lives of people were transformed forever against their will, and in the overwhelming vast majority of experiences to the detriment of their well-being and material circumstances. But maybe you're more cold-blooded and inhuman. Let's say you're Stalin, just for fun. Well, if that's the case, then everything worked out in the end. Millions of dead be damned. Soviet agriculture took a hit that wouldn't even be entirely recovered from by the end of the 30s when a whole new crisis presented itself. 
But that didn't matter, because while food production and the nutrition of the USSR suffered after collectivization, the overall population was sustained sufficiently for the Soviet state to continue forward. Because for these past three episodes, I've just been talking about agriculture. There was a lot more going on in the cities that we're going to be getting into next week. Industrialization was, if anything, even crazier and more seat-of-your-pants than collectivization was. The difference between the two was that the industrialization side of the five-year plan was actually achieved, again, with great sacrifice and no small amount of human misery, and that was the important sector. It was the one that would transform everything in the USSR and allow it to survive the bloodbath of the 1940s. The Glucose didn't have to exceed expectations, which was good because they failed left and right. They just had to deliver enough food to keep the industrialization effort going and ensure that the workers didn't mutiny themselves or simply drop dead, which I guess would have been kind of a mutiny in the USSR. As should be obvious after the past two episodes, as long as the urban workers got enough to keep going, the fates of the farmers wasn't that big of a deal. If they died, they died. The other marker of collectivization success from Stalin's point of view was that it did bring the nation's food production under state control. The system of peasant communes had been smashed forever, and their former communities were brought under a level of state oversight that was unheard of. It is really hard to overemphasize how the lives of farmers changed in less than a decade. An entire way of life was dismantled in a historical instant. You should take a moment to stop and consider the apprehension, fear, anger, and resentment that the farmers must have felt as they simply tried to survive under circumstances that they were so unfamiliar with and had not asked for it any single way. But then again, I say Stalinishly, this was the class of people that had kept itself apart from the rest of the nation. They had refused the revolution, and indeed in 1920 and 21 had almost brought it down as they withheld food for the cities. And before that, them putting their own material interests ahead of the state during World War I had effectively brought down the Tsar as well. If left alone, the peasants would have had the power to make or break a nation under crisis conditions. The communists understood that there would be some kind of counterattack against them from abroad, which could come from virtually any direction. Much of the point of the five-year plan was to ensure the USSR could stand up to isolation and attacks from the outside. I now welcome you to imagine how long the Soviet state would have lasted in the dark days of 1941 and 42, when the Axis armies plunged all the way to the gates of Moscow and eventually occupied Stalingrad's Volga riverbank. It would certainly be an inconvenient time for uncollectivized private farmers to decide that they could get more bang for their buck if they withheld food supplies once again and wait for an opportune time to sell. Now, there is no excuse for the criminal lack of planning, uh, foresight to the obvious consequences of collectivization, or the indifference to the massive famine. But the central goal of this podcast is to still examine why World War II played out the way that it did, and a key feature was that despite the body blows inflicted on it, the Soviet Union held its ground, when, say, the Tsarist Empire did not. In World War I, the Central Powers exerted far less pressure on the Russian Empire than the Axis did to the Soviets. The difference was that the Tsar ruled a state apparatus that was stunted and ineffectual, while the Communists had one that reached even into the most distant and remote countryside. The USSR was secure domestically in ways that its predecessor could never dream of. At the outset of this three-parter, I described the relationship between the communists and the peasants as mutually suspicious and hostile. The communists identified that such a state of affairs couldn't go on and treated it with the seriousness of a war, and the battles in the countryside became virtually a second civil war. 
And once again, because they realized the stakes and were unshakable in their own belief in their cause, they were able to pursue that struggle to total victory. It wasn't glorious, and the memory of these years is largely damned in the historical record. But they won. Even when the state's grip was loosened later, there was no going back to how things had been. Unlike in 1921, the peasants would have to make their accommodations with the state, not the other way around. So, yeah, great going, Stalin. The food supply and the peasantry as a people were secured. Battered and traumatized, but secured. Objective accomplished. But that wasn't the only objective, far from it. Agriculture obviously wasn't near and dear to the Bolshevik heart. Industry was. Which is why we now bid adieu to the farmlands of the USSR and move on to the centerpiece of the five-year plan, rapid industrialization. What took the better part of a century in the West would be done in less than five in the Soviet Union. Not perfectly, and not without a terrible cost, though. Join me for that next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.